Hey, I'm J.D. Brooks. I'm one of the elders here at Hope. Uh, I'm going to read our passage today and then pray for us. So, hear the word of the Lord. In Exodus 20, 13, the Lord says, You shall not murder. Uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lease your accuser, hand over, the, hand over to the judgment, and judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Um, I was telling Gordon there were so many things that um, convicted me in this, just my anger, um, that there was too many to tell a story, but... Then what really struck me was whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So this week I came home um, and I've talked to a lot of people about some of my judgments of people in my neighborhood, but uh, I literally drove up. I thought to myself, this guy's an idiot. I came inside and I said, did y'all see that? He's such an idiot. And my son Graham said, I said the same thing. And I just felt so bad that um, my anger and judgment has clearly generational sin has passed down to him that after a couple of hours, I, was, I apologized to him. I was like, man, I'm sorry. I've, I've taught you to react that way. But um, I didn't really feel, I felt sorry that I taught him to react that way, but I didn't feel guilty about my reaction um, until, I, until I read that. Just because um, my anger can come out in a lot worse ways than that, um, that I didn't feel bad about calling somebody an idiot until you just see that. So um, anyway, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for Gordon, um, but mainly I'm just going to pray for our hearts this morning. So uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you uh, for your church. Thank you for allowing us to be here um, we know that it's a gift, that every day is a gift from you. Um, I just pray that as we go forward today, that you'll keep our hearts uh, free of judgment, free of malice, uh, free of prejudice, um, and mainly just free of anger uh, towards one another and also towards you. I also want to pray for those things uh, throughout the city of Charlotte, um, in our state, in our nation, just that um, you'll calm our hearts, um, and let us have a posture of gratitude versus anger. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, J.D. Well, as you've heard a few times now, we are doing a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. This morning we are on the Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Murder. And I want to acknowledge out of the gate, uh, and maybe you've already kind of um, gotten a feel for this command is huge, but the temptation when you look at this command in particular is just to zone out for the next few minutes because I think it's safe to say 
And I don't know everybody in here, but most, if not all of us, have never murdered somebody. We've never killed someone. And so this is the one command that you can look at and you can say, well, you know, I got that one. This is the one I've nailed. I may not be great at doing all the other Ten Commandments, but I know for a fact I've never taken the life of another. Of all the commandments, this is maybe the briefest and most succinct of all the commandments. In fact, in the original Hebrew, the verse is only two words long. Never murder. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier in the week. He's actually a missionary in Prague, and I was telling him the challenge that I'm facing this week is how to preach one sermon, a full sermon, on one verse that consists of two words. He said, oh, I I know what you should do. You should just get up and go, all right, guys, listen, don't do it. Don't murder. It's really, 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 really bad. Bad things are going to happen. I'm not kidding. Just don't do it. He said, just do that for 30 minutes and you'll be fine. Well, as uh, I studied um, leading up to this morning, I definitely learned that that was not going to be a challenge. And that that is not the case because of the shortest command of the 10, commandment of the 10, this may require the most explanation. Because the way that we are to keep this command, the way that humanity has violated this command, and the ethical implications of this command are far more than I could ever cover in one sermon. In fact, Redeemer New York, uh, Tim Keller's former church, devoted one week to each of the 10 commands until they came to this command as to which they devoted two weeks to you shall not murder. And on top of that, as I've really dug into this command, I've come to believe that this actually may be the most difficult one to actually keep. In fact, as we've been doing this series, this command, much like what J.D. was saying in my preparation this week, this brought about the most conviction to me because of how quickly I not only unintentionally violate this command, but how I do it with great intention as well. And so this morning, I want us all to slow down. I want us to have the courage to stay engaged and look honestly at our lives because we are going to see that when it comes to the sixth commandment that we are guilty, guilty, guilty. And the consequences of our guilt could have dire repercussions. And so I want to pray for us again, uh, and then we'll get started. So let me pray. Father, we are going to see um, how tempting and easy it is to come to your Ten Commandments and to use them as validation for how we're living our lives. And we can look at the command of never murder, and almost lazily we can say, well, I've never done that, so I'm good. I'm doing better than most or better than a lot. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your Spirit now to speak to us through your words, both the Old and New Testament, to reveal ways that we actually are murderers in the way that we do it, and that we are in so desperate need of grace. Um, Father, I pray for that for myself. Um, Just going into this this morning, I'm so convicted about my heart posture, the things I've said to people, uh, the things I think, the anger that I carry with me everywhere I go. Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit through the power of your gospel Uh, to change our hearts and minds this morning for our good, but ultimately for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, um, this morning as we consider these two words, we're going to look at three points. This is the outline in your bulletin. First, we're going to see why the sixth commandment, where we're going to ask the question why. Uh, We're going to see what it means to break the sixth commandment. And then lastly, we're going to see what it means to keep the sixth commandment. So let's jump in and take a look at our first point, why the sixth commandment. So as we start this morning, 
I want to ask a question, and it's fairly straightforward, but it occurred to me this week how little I've actually thought about it. Here's the question for you. Why is murder wrong? Why is murder wrong? Even if it's considered to be universally wrong, why is that the case? I think you could walk out of this building right now, you could find 100 people in Charlotte, and you could say, do you believe murder's wrong? And I think 100 out of 100 would say yes. But then if you asked why, I think people would say something like, well, I don't know, it's just not right. Or maybe if somebody gave a little more thought to it, they may take it a step further and say, if our society is to function, if we are to feel safe and flourish as human beings, you can't just go around killing people all the time. And so when it comes down to it, I think most people would defend keeping the Sixth Commandment for some sort of practical ethic. Why is murder wrong? Well, that's just the way things work in the world we live in. But we can know biblically that that just isn't the case. And the sanctity of life is based on more than just pragmatic considerations. We know that every human being is created in the image of God. We first see this in Genesis 1:26, where we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Fast forward just a few chapters until we get to the story of Noah and the flood. And after the flood waters have receded, God speaks to Noah and his family. And this is what he says. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green, green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require it. And for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Notice what God said there. He said, do not eat meat with its life, that is, his blood. And then he says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. If an animal kills a man, that animal will be killed. If a person kills another person, that person's blood will be shed. And why is that? Because, men, because God made man in his own image. One commentator I read this week said, to take, the, up the, to take up the life of another is to tear up a picture of God. Another commentator said, to damage a life is to deface one of God's masterpieces. Theologian John Calvin once wrote, Our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. So no matter people's race or ethnicity, how they vote, their health or disabilities, their age or infirmities, or whether or not they are just annoying. Every person has dignity and worth since they are created in the image of God. Scripture allows for the sixth commandment to be based on something deeper and better than good practical advice. 
But not only does the sixth commandment preserve the sanctity of human life, it also preserves God's rule over life and death. Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. He is the author and inventor, its ruler and sustainer. Since he is the giver of life, it is also his prerogative to take it and to do so in his own time, in his own way. The sovereignty of God is always at stake in matters of life and death. To take a life unlawfully is to violate God's rule and reign over life and death. Remember the first command that we looked at just a few weeks ago. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Taking the life of another is putting yourself in the place of God. And so why the sixth commandment? To sum up our first point, because of the value and worth that each individual has because of the image of God in them and because God is God and we are not. And so this brings us to our second point, the breaking of the sixth commandment. And this is where we're going to see how far reaching these two verses are or these two words in the Hebrew are, because we're going to see that the implications are massive. And again, I can't do justice to them in our time together this morning, but let's briefly consider a few. First, I want to notice a couple of things that are not considered breaking the sixth commandment, and one is self-defense. If you are in a position where your life is threatened, you have every right, even biblically, to protect yourself. There are numerous examples of self-defense in the Bible. Even Jesus himself told his disciples the night that he was going to be arrested in Luke 22. He says, guys, listen, things are going to get really bad. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. He says, arm up. Another way, uh, which is not breaking the sixth commandment, is what is called fighting in a just war. David did not murder Goliath. And so there are many other examples of this in Scripture. And so what this means, if one of your friends, your family, or even yourself served in the military and it required the taking of life, this is actually not murder. So what is it then? What is murder? One commentator said the best translation of the sixth commandment may be, you shall not kill unlawfully. Well, what does that entail? Well, certainly murder. It is explicitly forbidden in the Sixth Commandment, and that can mean a number of things, some of which are sadly even sanctioned by governance all throughout the world. One example would be euthanasia. We've seen instances of this all across the world, killing off the life of an elderly person because of no deemed value. Infanticide is murder, which we saw early in in the study of Exodus when all the male babies of Israel were thrown into the Nile. Genocide is murder much like what took place to the Jews in Nazi Germany or what just happened a few years ago in Rwanda and still happens all throughout the world today. And make no mistake, there is no greater genocide than that of abortion. Now, I want to be really sensitive here because every one of our lives, every one of us in this room have been touched by abortion. Sadly, maybe you've had one yourself or you've paid for one, or maybe you have friends or family that have had an abortion, maybe some you don't even know about, but we can't get around what Scripture's saying here. Psalm 139 says, For you formed me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
The psalmist is speaking here of embryonic life, which is truly life within the mother. And until very recently, the church has always opposed abortion. There's a first century document called um, the Didache, and it says, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant, which was common in the Gentile world at the time. Again, quoting 16th century theologian John Calvin on this matter, he said, the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet began to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own home, in his own house, than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be more atrocious to destroy the fetus in the womb before it has come to light. Now, I want to pause here. Because if abortion is part of your story or the part of the story of someone you love, it is not the unforgivable sin. There is grace here. Just like every other sin that you and I have ever committed, Jesus Christ died for it. And through repentance and faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven and your record will be expunged. And make no mistake, you will see that child again. And we know this because of what King David said after having an affair with a married woman, murdering her husband, and then losing the child of the affair. This is what he said. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And the same is true for you, if that's part of your story. Now, I understand um, that there may still be people here that are sitting there going, yeah, I'm still kind of good. Nothing you have said relates to me yet at this point because none of these examples are part of your story at all. But I will tell you, it actually gets worse because there's much more to it than this. Murder is not just taking the life of a legally innocent person, but it's also failure to prevent someone's life from being taken. One commentator I read used the example of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, and you may know the story. Uh, the story is about a man who was going down a dangerous stretch of the road, and he's attacked and left for dead. The first two people to come, him, to come to him as he's laying in a ditch are religious leaders at the time, a priest and a Levite, and they see the man, and they move to the other side of the road, and they keep going. They had the ability to help, but they chose not to. Now, fortunately, the story does have a happy ending, but if that man in the ditch would have died, then his blood would have been on their hands, the priest and Levite, as much as it would have been on the attackers. Ed Clowney, in his book, How Jesus Transformed the Ten Commandments, wrote this. He said, Yet in the sight of a holy God, we are all guilty of dishonoring life. In our rebellion against his goodness and truth, we fail to stand up for the weak and the helpless. We keep our food to ourselves, forgetting the orphans and widows. We are too frightened to engage in the defense of the unborn children of our land. The stench of our crimes strikes infinite revulsion in God and all the more because of his incomparable purity and holiness. Somebody told me years ago that the reason you put quotes up is when somebody has more courage to say something that you don't have the courage to say for yourself. So thank you, Dr. Clowney, and thank you, Martin Luther, for what he's about to say here. The commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent protect and save him from suffering bodily harm. We are all guilty 
of dishonoring life, and that strikes infinite revulsion in God. And not only have we done it in our actions and inactions, we have also done it in our hearts. Again, let's read the passage J.D. read from Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jen Wilkin in her book, Ten Words to Live By, told a story that how when she was a young mom, the show Super Nanny came out. So Super Nanny was a hugely successful show back in the early 2000s. Um, Over six million people watched it every week, and it was in 48 different countries, and it was one of the biggest success stories in the kind of early movement of reality TV. Uh, The show was about a woman named Joe Frost, uh, who was the super nanny, who would enter into the mayhem and chaos of other parents' home and try to bring about peace and order. And Jen said that it occurred to her that she was obsessed with super nanny, but it wasn't because of getting parenting help. She said she watched it in order to get validation. She said she would see these parents with all these far bigger issues and bigger problems, and it gave her the opportunity to watch it and go, you know what, I'm not that bad of a person after all. I'm not that bad of a parent after all. And she said rather than turning off the TV and thinking, well, tomorrow I might try that, she would turn off the TV and say to herself, well, at least I've never done that before. You know, I've realized when I read that how quickly and often I do the same thing. I'm currently listening to a podcast called The Real Dictators, and I've passed it along to some of you. And the podcast details the rise of dictators and murderers into their prominent positions, and it features Adolf Hitler, it features the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin, Zimbabwe's uh, Robert Mugabe, and many others. And my takeaway when I listen to it every week is, well, I may be bad, but I'm not that bad which isn't really saying much if you think about it because the bar is pretty low with those folks. But that's my takeaway every week. And I was even thinking about two years ago when the wildly popular podcast came out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And this was a podcast that detailed Mark Driscoll's fall from grace as a pastor. And every week, again, my takeaway was, well, I may not be the best pastor in the world, but at least I'm not that. So that was the mindset of the people that Jesus was talking to in Matthew 5, the Pharisees. They were constantly playing the comparison game. They based how they were doing specifically spiritually compared to everyone else. And it was all about moral outward obedience. They used God's law, much like Jen did with Super Nanny, much like I do as well, for validation. And we see this so clearly in a story that Jesus told in Luke 18, where he said this, Two men went up from the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector 
standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. Now, not only that, but the Pharisees would take God's law and they would do the minimum of outward obedience, thinking that was what made them righteous. It's kind of like a, a, a child, a little boy who is eating the bare minimum of his vegetables so that he can earn dessert, so that he can earn the prize. And so what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5 is he's showing that even the most moral, even someone who has never committed a crime, has the same spirit of murder in their hearts as even history's worst dictators. Look at what Jesus says. In Matthew 5.22, he says, If you've ever been angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder. Let that sink in. Have you ever been angry before? Just today. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever had a vindictive anger where you just wanted to pay someone back? Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Ten Commandments, wrote this. In David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, he has a chapter entitled, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? It's very clever because the chapter is only one word long. Yes, That's all it says, and rightly so. You and I have an anger problem, and if we don't get it under control, we may be in danger of hell. Later in verse 22, Jesus said, If you have ever even insulted your brother, you are liable to the council. Now, I'm not 100% sure what that means, but it can't be good. Because have you ever insulted anyone? I know I have, and I've done it a lot. Jesus went on to say, if you've ever said you fool, you're liable to the fires of hell. Now, the word fool there doesn't really capture the original language. In the Hebrew, the word is raka. And that can mean any word or term of degradation, devaluation, or slander. Have you ever degraded someone with your words? I know I have, especially when I'm driving. When I drive, I'm the standard. And anybody that's going faster than me is a maniac, and anyone that's going slower than me is a moron. I was even struck by this. This is where I got so convicted this week. I was, Wednesday, I was taking the day to try to write my sermon. I was walking into lunch. I'd been working on my sermon all morning. I'm walking into a restaurant, and these two women are standing in the doorway having a conversation, and I kind of was making it known, like, you're in my way. And I just thought, what idiots. Last night, I was telling Eric Warren this. I went to the store before uh, dinner, and I was in the parking lot of Harris Teeter, and I was behind this car, and she was very kindly letting everybody who needed to cross into the parking lot cross. And I, I like, was thinking, can I pass her? What can I do here? And I just thought, what a fool. I have been in this passage all week, but the seeds of anger, which is murder, is so deep in my heart. How about you? Do this for me. Think back to the pandemic. What did you think of people that had different political views than you? Different views on masks than you? Different views of the vaccine? vaccine. Did you think they were idiots or fools? Because what Jesus is saying here, the letter of the law ultimately doesn't matter. But it's the spirit of the law, which the Pharisees and all of us have clearly broken. And so what that means, if you can learn anything from Jesus' words in Matthew 5, we are all murderers. 
And that is a problem. Because Revelation 21 tells us this, but as far as the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If we commit murder, even in our hearts, even in our thoughts, and even with our words, that's the fate we deserve, the second death. And know this, if there's no way for murderers to be saved, then there's no way for anyone to be saved. But we have hope. We need a Savior and ultimately have one in Jesus Christ. You know, it's a really good thing that Jesus kept God's law, including the sixth commandment. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, although he had done no violence. It later says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. In other words, Jesus was peaceable even when he was provoked, and in this way he offered perfect obedience to the sixth commandment. And it's a good thing, too, that Jesus died on the cross because when he died there, he died for murderers as much as anyone else. Do you know the first life that was saved through the death of Jesus Christ? It was Barabbas. And who was Barabbas? Well, Luke tells us in Luke 23, verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. The first person whose life was saved through the death of Jesus Christ was a murderer. And when Jesus Christ, when he was being um, murdered himself, when he was on the cross experiencing his own murder, instead of shouting, Raka, instead of insulting his killers, instead he prayed this, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And he still continues to save murderers even to this day. And he sits at the right hand of God praying the same prayer. After the resurrection of Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, the apostle Peter preached in Jerusalem to the same people who demanded to crucify Jesus. And he accused them of murder, of killing the one who came to be their savior. And when they realized that when they realized what they've done, that they were murderers, they desperately wanted to know what they could do about it. And Peter said this to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There was a way for their murderous sin to be forgiven, the very death of the one that they were guilty of demanding. Jesus' death on the cross was the very death that brought about forgiveness for their sin, and the same is true for us. And this ultimately is how we obey the sixth commandment. Even though we carry this murderous anger inside of us, well, what do we do with it? Well, ironically, we don't just merely try to be less angry. In fact, we need to kind of admit the opposite. We need to be like Bruce Banner, who is the Incredible Hulk in the movie Avengers, when he said, that's my secret cap. I'm always angry. And we have to admit the same. Remember, do you have a serious problem with anger? One word, yes. We all do. 
And so we have to go to God and admit the secret that we think we're keeping from Him, but we're not, and from others, that we are angry people, that we have hurt people terribly, that we have murdered in our hearts. We have to admit that to be true, and that's what Peter called repentance. We have to repent of that, and then we need to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The way that we keep the sixth commandment is through the Holy Spirit crediting Jesus' perfect obedience to us and realizing what it took for that forgiveness to come, the murder of God. When we remind ourselves of this every day, our hearts begin to change, and we actually begin to keep this commandment with each other. We become less angry with each other because we realize the anger of God that we deserve was poured out on His Son. We realize that from the cross, Jesus Christ had every right to insult the ones who were killing Him. He has every right to insult us because of the way that we have lived our lives, but instead of insulting us again, He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And at the end of the day, we can admit and realize that we are fools. We are so foolish, deserving of the rejection of God. But instead of calling us fools, instead of saying, Raka, I am done with you, he says, you are my beloved. I am your God and you are my people, even though you are murderers. Folks, that is grace. That is good news. That is the best news, and that can forgive any sin, even sins of murder. It can change even the most murderous of hearts. As we close, I want to give a little bit of an application for some of you, maybe all of you, maybe even me. I want us to notice one thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5, and this is from verses 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So notice something here. Jesus, immediately after talking about the different ways that we have murdered our brothers and sisters in our hearts and with our words, begins to talk about reconciliation. Why is that? Because he knows that we are all guilty of doing it. That we have been hurt, but that we hurt. And this is what I want you to notice here, the end of verse 33. He says, if your brother has something against you, not if you have something against your brother. Not if you've been hurt by your brother. But if you have hurt your brother or sister in a way that has caused them to have ill will towards you, he says, hey, it's not too late. Go now. Go and seek reconciliation. Use your words not to kill, but to give life. And so maybe for you, this day is a day for reconciliation to begin in relationships that you have hurt others. It's not too late. Jesus says, go. Remember the heart of the gospel is about dead things, murdered things, murdered people that come to life again. Go and seek to be reconciled to your brother or sister because of the great reconciliation Jesus provides between a holy God and murderers like you and me. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your Holy Spirit brings conviction. Um, It grants us the gift of repentance to you and to others. And it makes possible the overwhelming gift of forgiveness from you, our holy God, who we have sinned against, who we have murdered, and others that we have murdered with our hearts, our thoughts, our words. Father, thank you that, again, the gospel is about dead things coming to life, and that even the deadest thing in our life can come to life again. It can be made alive by the gospel. Father, I pray that we may see that even happen today um, in our relationship with you and our relationships with each other. In your name I pray. Amen.